Well, this morning we are in Luke chapter 22. We are looking at verses 35 through 46. Luke 22, verses 35 through 46. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll be uh, bringing the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that, the scripture, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So this morning we are concluding, not only concluding the, the Last Supper, but we are entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not what Luke doesn't identify it as the Garden, but the other Gospels do. But this is the famous Garden of Gethsemane moment uh, as Jesus prepares for his arrest. Uh, but as we prepare for to our, try, try to understand what's going on here, it's what, what do we do with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? How do we understand what he does here? What he does is certainly odd, sweating drops of blood, but how does that fit into his work of, the work of redemption? How does that, uh, we're not really sure what to do with the Garden of Gethsemane, except to say this is a very hard and painful moment in our, you know, to, to feel sympathy for Christ, perhaps. Uh, but... Uh, there are there are those who do make have something very clear to say about this moment. For instance, uh, the, the Church of Latter Day Saints, the Mormons, uh, they actually argue that uh, that in the Garden, uh, Jesus took on the sins of the world and the pains of all men. That the Garden of Gethsemane, and not the sufferings of of the cross and Golgotha, are the focal point of Jesus' redemptive work. That the cross may have been necessary, but that was the devil getting his due. But the, the actual atonement that Christ did for his people came in the garden when he sweat drops of blood. Now, very clear, not only do we strongly disagree with that, that is actually what we would call heresy. Uh, we don't use that word lightly. We don't run around calling everything heresy that we disagree with. That is actually heresy. It strikes at the fundamental of the gospel uh, itself, and I'll explain why in a little bit. But, um, but we still, you know, just because the Mormons are wrong, 
doesn't mean we have a right grasp of what Jesus does here in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, again, we ask the question, what place does the agony of Jesus in prayer in the garden have to do with his work as the Messiah and with us today? And so there are two points in this passage that, that bring us from the upper room to the Garden of the Mount of Olives. And so, and t- that will help us get a clarifying, a clear understanding of what's going on here. And that, and that first, we see from the upper room conversation that while times may change, God will always provide for His church. And secondly, that the agony of Christ is the hope of the Christian. The agony of Christ is the hope of the Christian. We'll look at each one of those first in verses thirty-five through thirty-eight. We look at how times may change. But God provides for his church. And so, uh, and, and, but I want to um, go a little bit out of order here and not just jump into verses 35 and 36, but actually look at verse 37. Because he grounds what he says uh, in verses 35 and 36 in what he says in verse 37. Um, and so, specifically, that the scriptures are being fulfilled in Christ, is what he says in verse 37. Now, there he quotes from Isaiah 53. Now, uh, we may need to refresh our memories unless you have memorized Isaiah 53, uh, which is definitely one of the great passages to memorize. Uh, We make a point to actually read Isaiah 53 at our Christmas Eve service uh, to to speak to this very point that Jesus uh, makes here. Uh, But Isaiah 53, uh, that is where we hear about the suffering servant. Uh, of Isaiah, who will come and be rejected by men, even by his own people. He will be a man of sorrows and grief, who will bear the sorrows and griefs of his people. He will be pierced and crushed for our transgressions and iniquities, but his wounds will bring us peace, the prophet says. For as he says there, while we all went astray like lost sheep, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And though he was innocent, Isaiah says, we who rejected him, uh, we who for whom he suffered, we rejected him thinking that he was simply rejected by God and cursed by him. This is uh, a lot of uh, if you um, next time we sing uh, um, stricken, smitten and afflicted. Listen to that language that is used in that hymn that, that really reflects that idea of Christ's rejection. But all of this, Isaiah says, was according to the will of the Lord, who will, uh, who will bless his servant, who he has crushed, with honor and glory. And then we come to the end, which is the last verse of the chapter. Um, and it's the verse that Jesus quotes, it sums it all up nicely. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so Jesus says two things about this passage and indeed about which would apply to the, 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 whole, the entire chapter. He says two things about this. He says first that this scripture must be fulfilled in him, in Jesus. And secondly, he says it was written about Jesus. These are not small claims that Jesus is making. 
If indeed Isaiah 53 was written about Jesus, and that means at the very least that all of this, everything that Isaiah says, and even the history of Israel itself has been working out according to, the divine, the, the, according to God's divine decree with the focal point of it all being Jesus Christ. It means that no other person could qualify to be the suffering servant except for Jesus. It's not just like Jesus came along and he just checked all the boxes. There's no one else who could qualify for the job. There's no one else who could be perfectly innocent, utterly pure, yet at the same time take on the sin and the punishment of his sinful people. Only Jesus. Further, this indicates to us the nature of what Christ is going to be doing on the cross. He will receive the punishment his people deserve so that he may be the go-between and intervene between the wrath of God and us. He will take the wrath of God upon himself for our sin. And instead of bringing God's wrath upon us, he will bring peace, blessing, and reconciliation with God. That's just really kind of scratching the surface of what Jesus is hitting at here. And so the scriptures, he says, are being fulfilled. They must be fulfilled in Christ because they were written about him. And also, and so, and so, we, and so he says, therefore, we must be prepared for reality because this is true. Jesus reminds his disciples in verses 35 and 36 about the time that he sent them out with strict instructions to take none of the normal supplies you would take on a journey. You know, it's, I mean, basically saying, hey, when you go out, don't take your wallet. Don't take an overnight bag. Like, don't take anything with you. Just go out with what you got, the clothes on your back. Leave your cell phone at home. You're like, no, no, ah, panic. I just, I, my heart skipped a beat. So, um, but, um, uh, but, you know, just but leave it all behind. He says, and when I sent you out like that, did you lack anything? And they said, no, we didn't lack anything. And he says, okay, now something's changing. Now when you go out, take your wallet, take your cell phone, take the overnight bag. You're going to need to take supplies from now on. Something is changing. His disciples are now to take all the things that they had once left behind. And that is, the principle that here would be then to... To, to make use of earthly means to heavenly ends. Now, the reference here to when he says to sell your cloak and buy a sword is a bit confusing. But uh, I was just talking with the youth this morning in Sunday school about how we use clear parts, the clear parts of the Bible to make, uh, to make clearer the less than clear parts. <laughs> so we, the easier parts to understand we use to help clarify the harder to understand parts. And so, and so we don't exactly know. It's a lot of debate about what does Jesus mean about go buy a sword. And it's like, okay, well, 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 what, well let's start with what doesn't he mean? He doesn't, he's not, he, Jesus has not changed his mind. He said, you know, when I said that, that my kingdom is not spread by the sword, I didn't really mean that. Right? Because uh, right, soon after this, one of those two swords that disciples have, it's going to be used to cut off somebody's ear. And Jesus is going to go like, uh-uh, that doesn't ha- that's not how this works. Okay? So, so Jesus apparently is not literally saying, 
go out and go over to 601 Sports and go get your, you know, go get your AR. You know, like, like he's not saying go arm yourselves, get ready for, get, we're going to start a militia. We're going to, uh, we, is what we need to do. Um, he has not changed, changed on that. Um, now, it, it is quite possible that, that he is saying, hey, look, you are going to have, as you go out in my name, you have to be prepared for the attacks that are to come upon you. You may, you may need to defend yourself. That, that, that is possible. But I believe primarily Jesus is speaking figuratively here. That he is telling them to be prepared for the battle that is to come. The battle that is not a physical one, primarily, but a spiritual one, primarily. When the disciples, uh, right after this, supply two swords, Jesus says, it is enough, not in the sense that two swords, we, well, we're good now, boys. We're, we are now well outfitted to take on the Roman legions, all right? But uh, um, there's quite, quite a few scholars that are basically saying that, that it's actually him kind of going, um, they cite uh, other examples where you see this pop up, where he kind of goes, enough of this, enough of this. You, you don't, you're not getting it. Enough of this talk, okay? Two swords, whatever, that's enough. And so as a church, we are not to read Jesus' words here and start stocking up munitions in our supply room, but to ask ourselves, how did the apostles in the New Testament apply Christ's words here? How did they express it? How did it come out in their teaching? Uh, when, uh, when do we find talk of swords and armor and battle? Is it literal or is it figurative? It's figurative. The author of Hebrews speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The book of Revelation pictures Christ coming back in Revelation 19 with the sword of judgment proceeding from his mouth. Paul most clearly states this for the context of the Christian in the church, uh, that our primary fight is not against the governments of the earth, but against the spiritual forces at work in the world, and that our chief means of defending ourselves, our chief means of fighting and, and even taking the fight uh, uh, to the evil one, is to put on the armor of God. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer and perseverance. The battle's on, but, it, but it's a spiritual battle primarily. And we need to know that the church will not lack in this battle. The disciples don't understand, and for, uh, far too often we don't either. We tie up, for, we tie up our spiritual direction and, and, and the spiritual uh, uh, um, uh, victory and success of the church with uh, national aims or political aims. We mix the battles up. Now we do that because we have to admit the spiritual and the physical do overlap. Uh, the, the evil, you know, the evil opposition to God and the gospel and His truth, uh, it doesn't come out in the wind. It comes out through people. It comes out through people expressing that wickedness through governments, through institutions, through individuals. But we can get so caught up with that physical manifestation of it that's the thing that's directly in front of us that we forget the spiritual reality that is behind it that Paul says that's where the real battle is. And if we forget the spiritual battle, then we won't use spiritual weapons. We won't use the spiritual armor that we have been supplied with. We will use earthly means and earthly tools, which are good and useful for what they can do. 
but they don't solve the problem. Further, there's an implicit promise here in Jesus' words to his disciples. He's saying, essentially, look, if you, when you, when I sent you out and you went out and you left all the stuff at home and you just went out by yourself and you lacked nothing, will you now lack that Jesus said, take your wallet with you? Will you now lack that he said, now you can take some earthly means with you? No. We will not lack the Lord's provision if we will commit ourselves to do the Lord's work, to embrace the Lord's calling to do the battle. And so we need to remember the provision of God for the church. We need to remember this as individuals, also as the body of Christ here at Bailey. We need to take up the, army, the armor of God and to seriously engage. I mean, how, how often do many of us walk out daily out the door without a thought to the reality of the spiritual war that is going on around us? But how will we stop the fiery arrows of the evil one if we leave our shield of faith at home? How will we parry his attacks off if we leave the word of God in its sheath in the closet in the back room? Is it possible that we ask why God has not provided for us in our situation because we have left his provision on the floor and said, I want something else? We will not lack his provision. We just must be careful to be clear about what exactly it is that he's provided. I know this because I'm a parent and my wife serves dinner and that a lot of times my young children are not happy with what has been provided to them. And we say, no, you have been provided. Here it is. It's right there. Eat it. <laughs> All right, this is food. And then there's always, you know, as, as a parent, you swear you're never going to say it, but then you're like, there are people who are not even eating today. And, you know, it's age old, you know, it just never dies. You know, I'll never say that when I'm a parent. And then you say it. So. But we need to remember the provision of God that we won't lack as God's people. But secondly, as we head into the garden, out of the upper room and into the garden, the Mount of Olives, that the agony of Christ is the hope of the Christian. The agony of Christ is the hope of the Christian, verses 39 to 46. And we need to be clear about the unique agony of Jesus. Luke, in verse 44, says that Jesus was in agony in prayer. That word agony is, um, shockingly, comes from the Greek word agon. Uh, but it, it means conflict, tension, the focusing of one's powers, not superpowers, but their, 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 their will and their mind. Their personality, focusing of the person, uh, it denotes a concern for victory before the decisive struggle. This is Jesus' pregame. We're almost in college football season, so this is Jesus' pregame here, all right? Jesus knows what's coming, obviously. He's called it, all right, several times already. He's called it in detail. He's called it for Peter. He's called it for Judas. Like he knows what's about to happen. He knows that Judas and Peter and the Jewish leaders and the, what the Roman leaders are about to do to him. But that is not what primarily concerns him here. That is not what drives him to his knees. It's not what drives him to ask God the Father to remove the cup from him. And now what cup is Jesus talking about? It is the cup of suffering under the pure holy, unyielding wrath of God Almighty for sin. That is what the cup is. 
Now, there's two things. There's, well, this might bother somebody after a while to think about it for a moment. And say, well, why would Jesus ask not to do this? Why would Jesus ask to not go to the cross? To not take the cup? Doesn't he love me? This is, but this is not a flaw in the love of Jesus for us. Rather, as many have argued, this is proof of his perfect character. It's proof of his perfection. Deroff Davis, in his commentary, he asks, uh, you know, if you survey the Psalms, what is the ultimate, the one unbearable terror of the Psalms? It is to be cut off from the light of God's face. You can take everything from me, but Lord, don't turn away. Right? What did Moses say to God? He says, look, if you don't go with us, there's no point in us going in. We're staying right here because we're not going anywhere without you. The terror of the psalmist is to be under even some outpouring of the anger of God. And it is the passion of the godly man to be free of that. It is the one thing that the godly man does not want at all. End quote. Yet Christ declares his willingness to follow his father's will, even though he does not want it. There's no contradiction here between the will of the son and the will of the father. Christ is, is, it shows here that he is not like the unwilling, imperfect sacrifices that are offered daily in the temple. But he is the perfect, willing sacrifice that will once and for all put an end to the sacrificial system, not because it's outdated, not because he's nullifying it in the, in the sense of obliterating it, but because he fulfills it. There is no better sacrifice to be offered. Yet to do so, he must do that which he has never done. He must become sin and curse and bear the wrath of the Father. So great is his agony that blood begins to seep through his pores like sweat. So the LDS Church, the Mormons at this point, are wrong because here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is not uh, 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 doing an act of atonement simply because he sweats blood but rather he is preparing himself to become the atonement of his people on the cross. To say that this moment in the garden is is the act of atonement for the people of God is to rob the cross of its power and to make it unnecessary. And I will tell you that every false gospel ever presented in some way, seeks to make the atonement that Jesus makes on the cross unnecessary. It's one of the ways you know you're dealing with a false gospel when the cross becomes optional. Here Christ consents to take the cup of wrath and to drink it down to the very last drop for his people. 
But Jesus is not alone, we find out, because an angel appears to strengthen him, to prepare him for what he must do. Yet note that even under the angelic ministry, Jesus in the fullness of his humanity, that's when he's sweating blood, even in the midst of the divine strengthening. And so we must be careful here at this moment to recognize that as believers, we're never going to have a Gethsemane moment. Only Jesus gets that. Only Jesus is the one who's going to, uh, who agonizes in prayer in this way. Only Jesus is the one who is the perfect son of God, who has never known sin, never known any fault, never known any moment of separation at all uh, from his father. Jesus is the only one. And so his agony is unique. It is unimaginable and cannot be replicated by his people and is the height of arrogance for any any Christian who says, you know, I'm going to, you know, I had a Gethsemane moment or something like that. Yet, that being said, we must reflect upon Jesus' interaction with his disciples and what I would call our calling to Christian agony in prayer. Jesus' Jesus' disciples were told to do one thing during this time. And what was that? To pray. He says, pray. And interestingly, he says, pray one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, that you would not enter into temptation. They, of course, failed to do that. They supplied sleep in the place of our prayers. Now, one may give a defense in verse 45, which is actually unique to the Gospel of Luke, that says they weren't just sleepy, but they were actually overcome with sorrow because apparently they were emotionally exhausted by all that they had gone through with Christ and that they knew something bad was going to happen. And we can empathize here, but we cannot excuse. But the Lord called upon them to pray. And as Christians, we are called as his disciples to continue steadfastly in prayer. We will not have Gethsemane prayer moments, but we are still called to pray. And it's interesting that the word athlete in the Greek actually comes from that word agony. The athlete is the one who agonizes, who strives, who struggles, who exerts all their will toward a particular end. And indeed, we are called as God's people to strive, to struggle, to be self-disciplined in prayer. Why? Because our Savior has had his Gethsemane. He has had his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he bids us to pray to him. And what a practical prayer he gives to his disciples. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. One author wrote, basically in paraphrasing, but he said, we cannot prevent temptation from coming to us but we can prevent ourselves from entering into that temptation, chiefly through the means of prayer. And so we are invited this morning to contemplate the great weight of our sin. That it was your sin and my sin, the wrath that we deserved, the very prospect of taking that upon himself and, and, and what that would do 
even momentarily to Jesus' relationship with his Father in heaven caused him to agonize in prayer so strenuously that he sweated blood. Sweat blood. Yet he still declared his willingness to carry out the mission. To drink the cup. To drink your cup and my cup. Filled with all the pure, hot, white wrath of God. To take it down to the last drop. So that there is nothing left for us. He declared his willingness. And he did this not only that we, we would be redeemed, but so that our prayers would be heard, so that the church would not lack anything in its work. So Christians today, I call upon us all to see our Savior who agonizes in prayer, but triumphs in the resurrection, to know that without a doubt, God will provide for his church. And in view of our Savior who is fulfilled and indeed is fulfilling the prophet Isaiah's prophecies for himself and for his people, let us today take up the armor of God, strive in prayer, and strengthen each other in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a true Savior who intercedes for his people, who blesses his people, who gives glory and shares his glory, who blesses his church and provides and outfits his church with what we need. So, Lord, we pray that we would hear our Savior, that we would, that, that we would hear his words, that we would prepare for the difficulty that, that lay ahead, that we would be moved by the sorrows and even the, the Jesus entering into sufferings, even in the garden before his arrest, even at the prospect of the cross. Father, may the weight of it open our eyes to the depth of Christ's suffering, but in it may we not fear, feel uh, just, just guilt or sorrow or remorse. May we feel those things where it is, as it appropriate. Lord, but may we see the grace and love of God at work. The unbounding mercy that calls sinners who do not deserve to be saved to salvation to be reconciled. And Lord, may we take seriously the call, the spiritual battle that lay before us. May we take up the provisions that you have made, the armor that you have given, the word that you have given to us, the means of grace that you have blessed your church with. And by prayer and the reading and the preaching of the word and the taking of the administration of the sacraments, Lord, may your church be blessed and strengthened and grow and advance your cause in, of the gospel in this community and the mission you have given to us. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.